So today, of course, we are celebrating this wonderful event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why I want to talk to you about the victorious resurrection of our Lord. Now, I have a few goals with today, and that is first and foremost to help us all see the infinitely supreme importance of the resurrection of Jesus. There is nothing more important that has ever happened or will ever happen than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second thing I'd like for us to look at is uh, the power of sharing this glorious news of His resurrection. When you minister to somebody, make sure to share with them the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means to anybody who believes in the Lord because those who do believe Him will also be resurrected just like He was. So first and foremost, I think it is important for us to know exactly who this resurrected Jesus really was. Who was He? Why is He important? Who was this Jesus that was murdered, so cruelly murdered on a cross and then was raised back to life by God Himself? In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, God the Father is speaking and He points to His Son Jesus as He says this. Hebrews 1 verse 8, He says, Your throne, O God. Your throne, O God. It's an amazing thing. Here God the Father is talking to Jesus, pointing to Him, and He says to Jesus, Your throne, O God. Can you hear that? God the Father is calling Jesus the Son God. He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. There is no end to your throne. There is no end to your rule. And then if you jump down two more verses in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 10, God continues and He says, pointing to Jesus, In the beginning, Lord, He calls Him Lord, You laid the foundations of the earth. Can you believe that God accredits laying the foundations of the earth to Jesus, the Son? And then He continues and He says, And the heavens are the work of your hands. Jesus, you created, you laid the foundations of the earth and you created the heavens. It was the work of your hands. This is our God who was murdered on a cross and then was risen back to life on the third day. This is who was crucified and this is who was brought back to life. In John 1 verse 14, the Bible says, The Word of God, which is what you hold in your hands, The Word of God became flesh and made His home among us. In other words, this Word of God took on flesh and then lived with us in the form of Jesus, of course. We have seen His glory, glory like that of a Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. So now we we recognize that Jesus was the Word of God made flesh. And then in verse 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the Word. So in other words, Jesus was in the beginning. And the Word was with God. In other words, Jesus was with God. And the Word was God. In other words, Jesus was God. Verse 3, everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came. And and without the Word, nothing came into being. Another translation says, and nothing was created unless He created it. So can we see again that Jesus Christ was in the beginning, and He was with the Father, and He was God Himself. And nothing was created outside of Jesus Christ. 
It's an amazing thing to think of it this way, that that is the God who was crucified. And that is the very God who God the Father brought back to life on the third day. Now, after Jesus appeared to His disciples, they saw and felt the nail-scarred hands. And when they felt His nail-scarred hands, this man that we know as Doubting Thomas, he, he proclaims something. In John 20, verse 28, He says, My Lord and my God. In other words, here's this apostle. He's on his knees, I can only imagine, in front of Jesus. He's touching Jesus' hands. He's looking at the nail-scarred hands and he says, My Lord and my God. Can you see that Jesus Christ is God? He is completely divine and He is the one that was crucified and that was brought back to life. That is who we are celebrating today. Not only do we see Jesus in the New Testament, but we also see Jesus throughout all of Scriptures. Throughout the entire Bible, we see Jesus on every page. We see Jesus in Adam. Jesus is the second Adam that breaks the curse of the first Adam. We see Jesus in Noah, the one called by God to save humans from a certain judgment. We see Jesus in Joseph, the one raised by God to save his rebellious brothers from death. We see Jesus in Moses, delivering God's people from slavery to sin. We see Jesus in the prophet Hosea, staying faithful to his unfaithful bride. We see Jesus in David, our triumphant champion, defeating our giant-sized sin sick nature. That's who it is. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? Here comes little David and he kills Goliath. Little David is a type of a Jesus who comes and he destroys and he defeats our giant-sized sin sick nature. We see Jesus in the perfect Passover lamb. We see Jesus in the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites' homes. We see Jesus in the manna that fell from heaven and provided, uh, provided for the Israelites in the desert. We see Jesus in the cloud by day and the fire by night that protected God's children in the desert. We see Jesus in the copper serpent on Moses' staff that was lifted up for all to see and for all to be healed by. We see Jesus in the rock that Moses smote with his rod. We see Jesus in the water that flowed from that rock. We see Jesus in the first fruits. We see Jesus in the Sabbath. We see Jesus in the Old Testament temple. As a matter of fact, we see Jesus in God's Word from cover to cover. We see Jesus. He is the one whose resurrection we celebrate today.
get our people out of Egypt, I will be with you. for the promised land. He was always by our side. Jerusalem. Now you're home. This is the very God who died for you. And this is the very God who was brought back to life so that you too can have a hope of a future eternal life with Him. Think about it. There are two deaths. There's the death that we all experience when sin entered. That's a spiritual death. But then there's a death we all will be experiencing when our time on earth runs out. But there's this promise that we live with. There's this hope that we have that God has promised us that just like He rose Jesus from the dead, we too will be risen to life in Christ. There is no sting in the death of one who believes. There is no, and that sting is really the sting of sin because sin kills. But it's like, it's like a bee whose stinger was taken out. There is no sting in death. Death no longer harms. The worst possible thing that can happen to you is also the greatest thing that could ever, ever possibly happen to you. The worst of things could be, is the best of things for a Christian. There is a supreme and infinite importance in the resurrection of this Jesus. No event in history reaches the importance of this resurrection of Christ. It is the crowning event in God's redemptive history. The resurrection is the foundation of the very gospel of Christ. It is the cornerstone of Christianity. Everything hangs on the resurrection. Christ's resurrection is your ultimate guarantee of heaven. This truth is that every human being who ever lived will live forever. Either in eternal hell or eternal heaven. The resurrection is the promise that guarantees all of us who are in Christ that we too will be raised from the dead in bodily form just like Christ raised from the dead in bodily form. The resurrection is the promise that guarantees every one of us who are in Christ that we will not be risen to damnation, but that we will rise as Christ did to eternal life, bursting with joy unspeakable and full of glory. That is something to look forward to. Amen. I mean, the resurrection is so significant that it dominates the entire New Testament. It dominates the preaching of the gospel. In other words, if there is no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there is no resurrection, there is no good news at all whatsoever. 
To establish the centrality of the resurrection in the gospel, let's look at a day in the life of evangelist Paul. Now, I know Paul was an apostle, but today I want to call him an evangelist because I want you to see something regarding the apostles. Now, to give you a little backdrop to the story before I read the verse, the apostle Paul was a very, very controversial man. Why? Because he was teaching a very, very controversial message that was brought to a very controversial individual, Jesus Christ himself. And as Paul was preaching in Thessalonica, there were Jewish people that came and started stirring the crowd up against Paul. And then Paul left. He thought, well, let me go to Berea. He got to Berea. He started preaching the gospel. And the Jews moved down to Berea. They followed him and they started stirring up people against Paul in Berea. To the point where it became dangerous and the Christians took Paul and they helped him escape to a city called Athens in Greece. And they told Paul, now Paul, you just wait right there. And they knew everywhere Paul goes, uh, um, you know, there's chaos. And so they said to him, okay, you just wait here, Paul, because Timothy and Silas is on their way, and they'll meet you here, and then you guys can continue ministering. So Paul's sitting in Athens, waiting, waiting for Timothy and Silas. And while he's waiting in Athens, he couldn't help but see all the idol worship. I mean, there were idols everywhere in Athens in this day. And the Bible actually says that Paul became greatly distressed when he started seeing all the idol worship in that city. And because of this, that he was so greatly distressed, he starts debating anything that lived and moved. He started debating people in the marketplace. Then he goes to the temple and he starts debating them. And he was just so, I, I assumed, not just distressed, but angered over this issue that there were so many false gods that they were worshiping. So at this point, as he was debating everybody, there were many philosophers in Athens at the time, and philosophers came and started talking to him. So let's pick up right here in Acts chapter 17, verse 18. The Bible says, A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul. Some of them asked, what is this blabber trying to say? Others remarked, He seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They said this because Paul was preaching what? The good news, the gospel. What gospel was he preaching? Jesus and Jesus resurrected from the dead. That's the gospel this apostle preached. Jesus resurrected from the dead. Oftentimes we like to go and we preach the gospel and we like to tell people our story and it's not bad, but it's not best. We go and we talk to people about, well, maybe, you know, God loves you and that's true. We go and we talk to people about, you know, I know you're going through a hard time. I know there's a lot of fear in the air. I know a lot of people on, are on the edge of life. Some people are coming to the end of their rope and they, they say God can help. Now these things are all good, but Preaching the resurrected Jesus Christ goes right to the heart of the gospel because the resurrected Jesus Christ says that there is a God who has conquered death and He offers you the same promise. He says that when you get to the second death, guess what? You, like Christ, can be resurrected inside of Christ. If God did it then, He can do it now. God did it for Jesus, He'll do it for those inside of Jesus. Now that is a message of hope. So we see Paul, he 
was accused of preaching Jesus Christ and Him resurrected. And so these philosophers got really intrigued with Paul. And they said to him, hey, listen, we have a place called Mars Hill right here in the city. And that's where all the philosophers around the world would come together and they would debate philosophy about life and eternity. And so they invited him to come and speak. And when Paul gets there, he delivers this message. I'm going to give you a portion of it. In Acts 17 verse 31, he says to all these philosophers, For God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice. All right, so here's his message. He's preaching the gospel to a lot of philosophers. And guess what he's preaching? He's preaching the justice of God. He's preaching a day, a coming day of judgment, all right? He says, For God has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. So God is going to judge the world by a man that He has appointed, the Jesus Christ He spoke of that was raised from the dead. He, God, has given proof of this very judgment to everyone by raising Jesus from the dead. So in other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof of the fact that there's a coming judgment, justice will be served, and the one who will judge the world is the one who was raised from the dead, Jesus Christ. This is the message Paul was given all those philosophers in, in, in Athens. And then verse 32 says, When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, in other words, when they heard about this message, of Christ being raised from the dead. Some of them sneered. Others said, we want to hear again, hear you again on the subject. And at that, Paul left the council and then some of the people believed. They followed Paul and they believed. So there's always going to be a portion of people who hear about the resurrection. They're going to mock it. They're going to make fun of it. And then there are going to be people who say, well, you know what, let me, let me think through it and let me hear more about it. But then there are those, when God gathers His sheep, those who say, I can't help but believe that that is true. I can't help but believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Why am I believing this? You know why? Because God gave certain people the faith to believe the impossible. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And that not of yours. It's not your faith. No, it is the gift of of God to you. It is God's gift to you. If you have the ability to believe in the resurrection, it is, it, it, we should be falling on our knees and saying, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that you have gifted me with faith, giving me the ability to turn and believe that God raised Jesus from the dead because that is how any one person is saved. Confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Oh God, thank you for that gift of faith. At the end of today, I'm going to pray with everyone. Because there might be some watching today that do not yet believe in the resurrected Christ. And we're going to pray and ask God according to the will of according to the Holy Ghost and as He wills, to give gifts of faith to men to believe in this very resurrection of Jesus Christ.
Then, after this example of evangelist Paul, let's move to other, other apostles. Let's move to evangelist Peter and evangelist John. Now, before we do that, let me just conclude. The greatest church planter in all of history, the apostle Paul, preached the gospel by preaching what? The resurrection. He preached the gospel by preaching the resurrection. So now let's look at evangelist Peter and evangelist John. In Acts 4, verse 1 through 4, it says, Peter and John were still speaking to the people when the priests, the officer in charge of the temple guards, and some Sadducees arrived. They were annoyed because the two apostles were teaching the people that Jesus had risen from the dead. That's what they were preaching, that Jesus had risen from the dead. The greatest news anyone can ever hear. He says, they were annoyed because the two apostles were teaching the people that Jesus had risen from the dead, which proved that the dead will rise to life. Jesus' resurrection is proof that the dead will rise to life, at least those who believe in Him. Verse 3, so they arrested them, put them in jail until the next day, since it was already late. But many who heard the message believed, and the number grew to about 5,000 people. Amazing. Evangelist Peter and Evangelist John preached the gospel. How? By preaching the resurrection. And thousands believed. Let's talk for a moment about the necessity of a resurrection. The necessity of a resurrection in your life. Why is the, is the resurrection so central to you? Why is it the foundation of your salvation? Well, number one, the resurrection is necessary for any to be born again. If any man is going to be born again, it's going to be because he believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Romans 6 verse 4 says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. We were buried with who? Jesus. Into his death. How? By being baptized. Just like when a person gets baptized, they go into the water. This says, therefore, we have been buried into a water grave with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Just as Jesus was pulled out of that grave, so you too can be pulled into a newness of life. Of life buried into the water grave buried to yourself buried to your sin and then you rise from the grave in a brand new life this is why the resurrection is necessary for a born-again experience if there was no Jesus who rose from the dead then you would have gone into the waters of baptism and you would have stayed there it would be no possible way for you to come out of the waters of baptism. Colossians 2 verse 12 says the same thing. It says, Having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him to a new life through your faith in the working of God as displayed when He raised Christ from the dead. So water baptism perfectly displays the spiritual realities of a born-again person. He went into the water grave as a sinner. This born-again person went into the grave 
dying to himself. This person, repent, turning from his sins, goes into the water grave, dying to himself, to his nature of sin and his record of sin. And just like Christ was pulled out of that grave by the Spirit of God, that same Holy Spirit of God pulls you out of death and brings you to life eternal. So we see that the resurrection is necessary for any to be born again. Number two, the resurrection is necessary for you for the forgiveness of sins. The resurrection is necessary for you to have the forgiveness of sins. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Can I say something? If all that Jesus did was lived his life exactly the Bible said he did, died exactly the Bible said, like the Bible said he died, hangs upon that cross and says, it is finished, dies, breathes his last, gets placed into a tomb, and never rises, but remains dead you would still be in your sin, dead in your sin. Your faith in a dead Jesus is worthless. It is the resurrection that validates and gives value to everything Jesus said and everything Jesus did on the cross. It is the resurrection that gives it its power. I'll read that to you again in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So without a resurrection, Christ, His cross, and His kingdom crumbles. Without a resurrection, your faith is vain and you are still dead in your sins. However, because of Christ's resurrection... Because of what we are celebrating today, your faith is valuable and you are no longer dead in your sins. But guess what? You're alive. You're alive unto God. You can breathe. You can live. You know that there's a hope, an eternal hope beyond the second death. The worst that could possibly happen to you is the best that could ever happen to you because Jesus rose from the dead. And so will you, because you are in Christ. Now that is good news. I feel like just giving the Lord a praise offering, right? <laughs> Number three, the resurrection is necessary for justification. The resurrection is necessary for justification. Justification, justification being made right with God. Being made right with God. Because Jesus rose from the dead. Look at this. Romans 4 verse 25 says, He who delivered up, he who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. He was given to death because we needed forgiveness for our sins. But he was raised from the grave so that we can be right with God. This is a big thought. I wanted to read it to you in the New Living Translation. Romans 4.25. He, 
He was handed over to die because of our sins. And He was raised to life to make us right with God. You were forgiven when He said it is finished. But you became a child of God when He rose from the dead. I'll give you an explanation of it. You, sir, you, ma'am, have had many people hurt you in your life. You have had many people sin against you. And you've had to walk through your life forgiving, 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 forgiving. And we all have to do it. But even though you have forgiven somebody for what they have done against you, you did not add them to your will. They don't inherit everything you have because you forgave them. In the same way, when Jesus said it is finished, paid in full, every one of your sins are now forgiven and paid for. But then when Jesus rose from the dead, you were justified. He didn't rise until you were justified. He didn't rise until you were made right with God, adopted by Him, being given the right to become a child of God, be given the right to become a son and a daughter of God. I am focusing on this and I'm emphasizing the resurrection because we have to learn to believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Our faith in that means salvation to us. I know oftentimes we like to believe that God loves us and we want to equate that with God forgives us. It, it, it's not so. God doesn't forgive because He loves. God forgives because people are in Christ. Let me say it differently. God sent Jesus because He loves us. And those who are in Christ, He forgives. And those who are forgiven will be made right with God because Christ rose from the dead. He conquered death. And now you too will have life as God has life after the second death. What an exciting thing to look forward to. The resurrection of Christ and the bodily resurrection of those who believe in Him is unique to Christianity. There is no other religion that believes the same. No other religion makes provision for the same. No other religion can in any possible way validate the same. But Christianity. You see, we rely on and depend on the ability to conquer death, don't we? We rely on Christ's ability to conquer death. Just like death could no longer hold Him, so death will never hold you. Just like death could no longer hold him, so death will never hold you. And if he rose from the dead then, he can rise from the dead now. And if God could accomplish it in Christ, then God can accomplish it for us who are in Christ through faith. You see, this way, as a church, we do not meet on Fridays. Generally, we don't meet as a church universally on Saturdays, the Sabbath. 
But we meet on Sundays, and I know a lot of people always have a thought about that. Some people have come up with this conspiracy theory about, well, it's because we worship now pagan gods, the sun god, and so forth. But let me give you the history as to why even the early church met on the first day of the week. We meet on Sundays, the first day of the week, which is the Lord's day, because that is the day the Lord rose from the dead. The Bible calls it the Lord's day, which is the day they always met. This is why we as the universal church of Christ meet on Sunday mornings to give centrality to the resurrection of Jesus. That's why every Sunday we gather together and that ought to really be the central theme of our gathering. We meet yet to make the resurrection central to our faith. You see in the Bible it refers to two different days, the day of the Lord and the Lord's day. When the Bible speaks of the day of the Lord, it's speaking of when Jesus will return to make war against His enemies. But when He speaks of the Lord's day, that is the day of the week that Jesus rose from the grave, the first day of the week, which is Sunday. So every time we meet on the Lord's day, every time we meet on Sunday, the first day of the week, it is to give testimony to the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So as Christians in the early church, they celebrated the resurrection weekly. The resurrection of Jesus Christ as always and always will be under attack. I mean, I know that you've experienced it, you've heard it. You may be somebody like Saul, who became the Apostle Paul, who used to persecute Christians and who used to attack the Word of God, its validity. But critics of Christianity has done all they can to possibly do in order to deny the resurrection of Christ. This is the big deal. This is the thing they really have to deny, the resurrection of Christ. They deny the Bible as being divinely inspired. They deny the Bible as the source of truth. They deny the Bible as a credible historical account of the ancient world. Because if they can discredit the validity of scriptures, then they can deny the very possibility of a resurrection. If they can deny the possibility of a resurrection then they have successfully eliminated the purpose and the power of the Christian gospel, which is God's promise that we will live beyond the second death. So the bottom line is, if there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there's no resurrection, Christ, His cross, and His kingdom crumbles. The resurrection is central to who we are as Christians. However, thank God, by His grace, He has raised up an army of voices who thoughtfully, intellectually, philosophically, and theologically have answered every critic who questions the validity of historical resurrection of Christ. You can search and study Christian apologists who have answered these critics, apologists like, for instance, the likes of John Lennox, John Lennox, fantastic apologist, Ravi Zachariah, Dr. Michael Brown, William Lane Craig, Craig Kokel, or Greg Kokel from Stan Therese. You can follow these men and these voices and study the resurrection and the validity of it. But today, what I want to do is, I want to close with this point. 
And we have a video to show you. And I want to pray with those of you who need to make Christ the Lord of their lives. But as we come in for a landing, I would like for you to consider this. As I raise one point, that'll give credibility and plausibility to believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And I'll do so by showing you who all in history is mentioned as eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's how history works. Did somebody see this? That's how when you walk into a courtroom, it works. Do we have an eyewitness of what happened? And so to give credibility, we have to look into who the eyewitnesses were of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's go to a video. I need a cup and some wine. What happened? Bobby. His blood. I'm the way. The truth.
It's an amazing thing. Here Jesus reveals himself one after the next after the next. And what struck me was as I studied all the different people that Jesus revealed himself to, I realized that Jesus in his resurrected body revealed himself to whoever he wanted to at whatever moment he chose to. And Jesus starts by revealing himself to a woman by the name Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, a woman with a reputation. And so what I'd like to do is, uh, last night when I, was praying for, when I was praying for everybody here, I thought, why don't I use our big blackboard that we have here in our building? And I wanted to draw up a timeline to go through the list of people that Jesus revealed himself to after he was raised from the dead. In other words, this is a timeline of eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. So let's move over there to the blackboard for a moment. And you will see from the left, first Jesus reveals himself to Mary, just as you saw in that video. This was Mary Magdalene. Let me just tell you something about her life. Mary Magdalene was demon-possessed. Jesus drove seven demons out of her before this moment. She became a follower of Jesus. Now, think about this. Back in the day, if somebody was demon-possessed, we have examples of demon-possessed people cutting themselves. We have examples of demon-possessed person throwing himself in the fire, committing suicide. We have demon-possessed people running around wild like animals. We have an example of a demon-possessed man eating grass, running on all fours, growing long fingernails. They were wild. People who were demon-possessed were wild. They were the least trusted people in all of society. So, here is Mary Magdalene, whom everybody knew was demon-possessed. One of probably the least trusted people in all of society. And guess what? Jesus reveals himself to Mary Magdalene, a woman with a reputation. He says, I am he, I am here. Mary Magdalene in Mark 16, verse 9, you can go there in John 20, verse 11. You see how she runs to the apostles, to the disciples, and now she's the one that says, everybody, I saw him. He's alive. Can you imagine them going like, okay, so I know you got delivered from demons, but, you know, Mary, please calm down. Isn't it interesting how God wrote the Bible? If anybody wrote the Bible, and if it was a fraud, and he wanted to make a point, why would, he, why would he allow and put a Mary Magdalene in there to be the first person to testify and be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ? Then after that, we see Jesus. He appears. He appears on the road to Emmaus as two men were walking Cleopas and a disciple. And as they were walking and they were moping because Jesus had just been crucified and their hope is shattered and now they don't know what to expect. They don't know what the future holds for them. Suddenly, Jesus walks with them. And he says, 
are you guys talking about? And they said, where have you been? Where have you been? I mean, don't you know what just happened? Jesus was just crucified. The purest man ever. The one we followed. Our hope is now shattered, gone, dead, in the grave. And Jesus says to them, hey, I am he. And the Bible says, he opened their eyes and they saw him and recognized him. And when they recognized him, he started telling them about who he was in all of scriptures, in all of the Old Testament, starting with Genesis all the way through Malachi. He says, can you see that was me? Can you see that snake on Moses' rod? That was me. Can you see the rock that Moses smote? That was me. Can you see the water that came from the rock? That was me. Can you see the, fi- the pillar of fire and the cloud by day, the fire by night? That was me. Can you see the perfect lamb that's slain in your, Passover, in your Passover ceremony? That is me. Can you see the blood that was on the doorposts? That was me. And he starts giving them a teaching as to who he was throughout all of Scripture because he came to fulfill all of Scriptures. Then after that, Jesus appears in a room where they locked, where the disciples locked themselves away. And for some reason, we don't know why, uh, the apostle Thomas, or the disciple Thomas was not there. So there were only 10 of them. Jesus appears to them. And of course, they absolutely amazed. This is a game changer. Jesus disappears. Thomas walks in. And he goes, what's going on? And they go, Jesus is alive. We saw him. He was in this room. Thomas then makes his great statement. And he says, unless I see him with my own eyes, I won't believe it. This is why they call him Doubting Thomas. All right. And as they're having this conversation, Jesus appears again in this room where they locked themselves away. So in other words, Jesus, in His resurrected body, He walks through a wall or through a locked door. He walks into the room, and there He is. And He walks over to Thomas. He says, touch my hands, look. And Thomas walks over to Jesus, and he realizes that this is the very body of His Lord and His Savior, Jesus Christ. Then after Jesus appears to them and convinces Thomas, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6 that Jesus appeared to 500 plus people in one time. There was a meeting somewhere, we don't have a lot of details about this meeting, where Jesus appears to 500 and more people. Then we see again Jesus revealing Himself to the disciples. Matthew 28, verse 16, this is in Galilee. We also see that Jesus appears in John 21, verse 1, where He appears to the disciples who were fishing, and with them was Philip and Andrew, and they're fishing, and He's standing on the, on the edge of the lake, and He's shouting, Hey, have you guys caught anything? And they say, No, we, we haven't gotten one fish yet. And He says, Well, put your put your uh, net on the other side. And so they did, and they caught so many fish. And then we see again, Jesus appears to the disciples in Mark 16, 14, and He gives them the Great Commission. And He says to them now, all authority has been given unto Me. Therefore, go. He says, all authority has been given unto Me. Therefore, you go. You are the body, and I am the head. You go into all the world and preach this gospel. 
Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, which is the promise that you too can be raised from the dead. Now let me show you something as I go back to the podium here. Jesus showed Thomas his hands. And as Thomas looked at his hands, he saw the body of Jesus. He believed. And Jesus said to him, You believe, Thomas, because you saw. You believe because you saw with your own eyes. He says, But blessed are those who believe even though they do not see. Family of God, Jesus was talking with you in mind. He had you in mind when He said, but blessed are they who believe yet have never seen. You see, it's almost impossible to believe in a resurrection unless something supernatural happens to you where God gives you the faith to believe that Jesus Christ rose on the third day and now that promise stands for you and I if in fact we also have faith in Christ. And that is what I want to call you to today. Blessed are you if you can believe without seeing the body of Jesus Christ. Romans 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised this Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. This is God's promise to you.